Hi, welcome to Church for Skeptics podcast titled The Great Banquet, where we discuss Jesus' parable about the great banquet and who is invited. We're glad that you're here, and we invite you to check out all our resources at churchforskeptics.com and on other social media as well. I have another parable for you this week, uh, the parable of the great banquet, Uh, one of the most interesting ones to me and a lot of cultural teaching surrounding it. Jesus, as a, as, a, as a teaching rabbi with authority, which was a higher level of uh, uh, rabbinical schools, uh, was often invited to the home of, in particular, Pharisees. Now, this wasn't really a friendly invitation, and of course he knew that, but he was going to be tested. They wanted to try to trap him in some uh, misteaching or, or bad teaching or erroneous teaching about uh, the Old Testament. It might be good to make a parenthetical thought here. I believe the Bible is the Word of God. Now, I believe in particular that the Old Testament is the Word of God, and my basis for that is Jesus said so. Jesus had great respect. He he treated the Old Testament as the Word of God, called it the Word of God, called it the Scriptures, and talked about them. Not one jot or tittle shall uh, fall away till all is fulfilled. So... All of his teachings as a rabbi were from the Old Testament. I think that's really important. Every, and this is, I think I can prove this, everything that Jesus taught is an interpretation of the Old Testament. So that's, of course, the subject of uh, uh, this banquet. So when Jesus is, is seated at the banquet, he's expected to say something. And so he begins, and this is, if you want to read it, it's found in Luke chapter 14. He begins instructing them about how to give banquets. It's kind of amusing to me that when Jesus is giving advice on giving banquets while he's at a banquet to which he's been invited, but of course he knows he's been invited there to be tested and inspected. So it's interesting to me that he, his advice is when you give a banquet, don't do it in a, in a way that you'll be repaid. He says when you give a banquet, don't just invite your friends that are going to be able to invite you back to their banquet, but invite those who cannot invite you back. Well, that's unheard of in those days. Um, That was what it was all about. It was the system, the social system that went along with the religious system. So he says, invite the the poor and the maim and the halt and the blind, and they won't be able to repay you. And then he says, but your reward will be great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, you might remember that the kingdom of heaven, as we said last week, was is the central message of the teaching of Jesus, him being the king, and he has already presented himself as the Messiah. So all this is going to tie together, I think, in a marvelous way as we work our way through this parable that he gives in response. After he gives this advice, uh, there's a somebody at the banquet who makes a statement then that it would be considered pretty common. Uh, in a pious way. It was, it was like somebody saying amen in church today or something like that, you know, and this guy's obviously trying to be pious. And he makes this statement, blessed is he who will eat at the great banquet uh, on the mountain of God. Well, that's, that's a common conversation uh, to get to eat at that banquet at the end of time when the Messiah would come uh, was considered to be, you know, top drawer. And that puts this whole conversation in um, 
an historical perspective. This is actually a 700-year-old conversation, that, and this is like one clip out of a movie, if you think of it that way, that Jesus is talking about. Uh, the, the conversation starts in the book of Isaiah, the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And as I said, all of Jesus' teachings are connected to the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 25, Isaiah prophesies that when the Messiah comes, finally comes, and there's not much distinction in the Old Testament between first coming and second coming uh, of the Messiah. That becomes clearer as time goes on and, of course, throughout the New Testament. But he says that the Lord is going to give a banquet on his mountain and serve the food of kings. And then he makes this statement, all the nations of the earth will be represented at this great banquet. We might call it today, I think it's the same thing that we call the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's also something that we as believers look forward to and we take the Lord's Supper. That's not necessarily a banquet, but it looks forward to the time of the coming of Christ. It's, it's a celebration of, of the salvation that has been given to us and an honor, of course, in honor of the King. And so Isaiah has made this statement way back in Isaiah chapter 25 that, that the Lord is going to give this banquet. We have the setting, and I think that's important, the context of, of what's going on here. And we've referenced Isaiah uh, with the conversation about a great banquet at the end of uh, the age, we'll say, uh, takes place. Now keep in mind, the big question about the Messiahship of, of Jesus in particular is this. Is the Messiah of Israel, is he just the Messiah for Israel? Is his ministry and position uh, just for the nation of Israel? Or is it something much bigger than that? Is it a worldwide position? Well, if you just take the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, it's very plain that this is not just something for Israel. As a matter of fact, if you go back to the starting point for God's redemptive plan to save the world through Israel would be his covenant with Abraham. And in that covenant, God says to Abraham, uh, I'll make a great nation out of you. And then at the end, he says, through your seed, singular, and that's brought up in Galatians, all of the world, all nations of the world will be blessed. Now, that's very plain. And of course, Jesus took that position. But something had changed very much since the book of Isaiah was given in the somewhere around 700 B.C., 600 B.C., before the captivity of Israel. If you just look quickly at the history of Israel during that time, they were taken into exile into Babylon, and then under Persian rule, after the Persians conquered the Babylonians, they were allowed to go back and rebuild the city of Jerusalem and the temple. Their mentality had changed a great deal about what the Messiah would do. And if, to continue the history, of course, no sooner than they get back to rebuild the temple. They're conquered first by Greece and then by the Roman Empire. So during the ministry of Jesus, that's what they're under. They're under the rule of their, the Roman Empire. Well, their concept of the Messiah's role had ceased to be a worldwide salvation. They didn't think much about his ministry to anybody but Israel. And his role would be to restore Israel to her former greatness under King David and King Solomon. That was the whole purpose of the Messiah coming. 
Now, there of course were spiritual overtones to that, but it was a highly political uh, concept of what the Messiah would be. Well, Jesus rejected that. You know, some, some of his followers, he's so popular among the common people, they tried to make him king. They wanted him to, be, to become the king, and he rejected all that because it's never God's will for the kingdom of God to be advanced through political means, any kind of earthly power. Remember he said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, then would my servants fight to protect him, obviously, but my kingdom's not of this world. So that's a huge question. Uh, to, to, to try to deepen your understanding of this, uh, we'll go to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 is when Jesus announces, in a sense, that he is the coming Messiah, and he does it in his hometown. Um, he later says, a prophet's not without honor except in his hometown. Well, in the same situation, he goes to the synagogue in, in, in his hometown. He's, he's a homeboy made good, so to speak. And so he's given a scroll, as was customary for a visiting rabbi. He's given the scroll to read. We don't know if it was prearranged that he read Isaiah or not. But he does something that rabbis often did that almost got him killed before his time, so to speak. He reads from the book of Isaiah and starts in chapter 61. And he says, he proclaims what's, what's called the year of Jubilee, which was another uh, something that Isaiah mentioned. And it was the year that had been commanded every 50 years. Israel was supposed to cancel all debts and everybody was set free from prison. People in prison in those days were primarily debtors anyway. Uh, and so that's called the year of Jubilee. All land would go back to the original owners. All debts were canceled. Well, that was never put into practice and you can see why. Uh, so it was left as a messianic fulfillment that would happen when the messiah would come and only the messiah would have the the qualifications and ability to put that year of jubilee into 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 practice well jesus reads from that but then he puts in some verses from isaiah 58 now that was common practice you put scripture with scripture but the verse that he left out of isaiah 61 that he read from is the verse that almost got him stoned they took up they were going to try to kill him then and of course they didn't um, the verse he left out was that it also is a day of the vengeance of the lord well that had come to mean think about israel being a nation of of, of captive people they were, had been conquered and they were under the tutelage of of rome that had come to mean this day of vengeance against the gentiles so the idea was not only that the Messiah would restore Israel to her former greatness, but that the Messiah would also judge all these Gentile nations and take their wealth and give it to the nation of Israel. The fact that Jesus failed to mention that caused his hometown crowd to take great offense at him. After all, he had grown up in Nazareth. Here's something else that you need to know. Nazareth is not mentioned in the Old Testament at all. There's a good reason for that. It didn't exist. But about 200 years before the ministry of Jesus, uh, one of the Maccabean leaders, and they were, they were a group that revolted against Rome, Roman rule, had actually conquered for a short time the area of Galilee and had started the city of Nazareth as what we might call in today's political terms a settler town. In other words, there were no Gentiles there. Uh, Jesus didn't grow up among the Gentiles. 
And this settler town was specifically designed to preserve Judaism. Uh, and so they had a very strong concept of what the Messiah would do when he would come. Jesus didn't fit that role at all to the point that saying, if you're claiming to be the Messiah, you can't be unless you're talking about judging the Gentiles. And so we're going to do away with you. <clears throat> of course, that didn't happen. So I think when you put all that into context, this idea of the great banquet, Isaiah says it's for all the nations of the world, the original promise to Abraham, all nations will be blessed. Obviously, God's program is a worldwide program of salvation. I hate use the word program. A uh, plan of redemption is better. But to the Jews in Jesus' day, they weren't concerned about that. They were concerned about restoring their prestige and power among the nations of the world. Now, I hope you keep in mind all these things we've talked about. There were this, this new view, we'll call it, of the Messiah and his role uh, in Israel. There were three primary sources, written sources, that were passed around and that were used to promote this, the lie, really, about, about the role of the Messiah. The first one was called the Targum. Now, the Targum is an Aramaic, which was the language spoken uh, in Israel, primarily the common language. Uh, many of them spoke, spoke uh, Aramaic and some Greek, which was the language of the world at that time, even though it was a Roman Empire. And of course, you had the, the Roman language too, Latin. Well, the Targum was an Aramaic, I, I'm not sure I would only want to use the word translation. It, it was promoted as a translation, but it was more of a paraphrase of the Old Testament. And the Targum, when it, in Isaiah 25, the same passage that I, that I mentioned earlier, in Isaiah 25, the Targum says, talks about the great banquet uh, at the coming of the Messiah. And it talks about God giving this great banquet on the mountain, and it even talks about him inviting the Gentiles to the banquet. But get this, in the Targum it says that when the Gentiles come to the banquet, it's going to be a trap. And that they're all going to be killed, of course the day of vengeance of the Lord against all the nations that oppressed Israel. And it actually says that the guests, the true guests of the banquet, the, the pious of Israel, are going to have to wade through the blood of the fallen Gentiles in order to get to the feast that it's talking about. Well, that is a completely perverse teaching from what the scriptures actually say. And from, by the way, that the, the true Old Testament was around then, that's the one Jesus used. The second source of that was a book uh, called the Book of Enoch that comes out of the Maccabean writings. And in, the, in that book, it talks about the feast. This, remember, this is common conversation and embedded into Israeli, uh, Israel's theology at that time. And in this version of the banquet, uh, there are just no Gentiles invited. Um, as a matter of fact, it also says that neither, it specifically, and this is important, no one who was blind, lame, um, blemished in any way could attend this banquet. In other words, if you couldn't get into the temple because of a blemish, you couldn't get to the banquet because of a blemish. That's, that's the, the Book of Enoch's version of the great banquet. There's a third source <clears throat> which also talks about the Gentiles, and uh, that comes out of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Essenes uh, have a book of Isaiah that, that, that they had copied that matches ours, but they also had another book and it was called the Book of the Messianic Rule. So we know exactly what it's talking about here. 
And again, it's talking about the great banquet. Well, in this version of the lie, uh, the Gentiles are invited, but again, it's a trap, and they're going to be judged, and uh, the banquet is a, is a blessing to those pious Jews and, and a curse to the Gentiles. So you can see why the expectations, you know, anybody that asks Jesus about a banquet from the time he announces his Messiahship, anything that he says about blessings to the Gentiles uh, is, is a great offense to those religious leaders of his day. So now let's get back to the, the, the first banquet at hand in which Jesus is, is asked. This guy makes the statement, blessed are those who sit down with God at the, at the, at the banquet. And so Jesus has already given them advice, and remember who he said that they should invite. The poor, the maimed, the blind, the halt, the very people that were excluded from the temple, the very people who were excluded from the, the banquet on these three versions that were perversions of the Old Testament of Isaiah. So in response to this guy's statement, now we finally get to the parable itself, the parable of a great banquet. And I... And once I really learned what's going on here, when you read it at first, you think, hmm, I wonder what he's really saying here. He says that a, a man gave a banquet. When it came time for the banquet to come, people began to make excuses about why they couldn't come. And one man says, the first guy says, well, I, I bought some land and I need to go inspect it. And the second man says, uh, I've bought a yoke of oxen and I need to go test them. The third man says, I've just gotten married, so I'm not going to be able to come. Well, in the parable, the, the banquet giver, uh, the man, uh, is angry, but his anger is diverted, so he tells his servant, first of all, same situation, go out and get the blind and the lame and the halt and the maimed, uh, the blemished people, and bring them into the banquet. Servant does that, and then he says, there's still room. Then the owner of the banquet, the host, says, all right, go out into the highways and hedges and compel those people to come in so that my house may be filled. Boy, this is, this is so impressive. And when you get the idea of what's really going on here in this parable, I think uh, you'll see how impressive it is and how wonderfully the scriptures just join together, Old Testament, New Testament, and especially in the teachings of Jesus. To understand the insult to this host of the banquet and the parable, we need to put the same situation in a modern Western culture, our culture today. Think about this. Both then and now, there are, there are always two invitations to a meal. If I gave a, a meal at my house and invited several people to come, I would, I would call them on the phone or email them and just say, hey, can you come to my house Friday night? We're going to have a big meal. They would come answer back and say, yes, I can come or no, I can't. So then during that day, uh, the meal would be prepared, not by me, by my wife. But when everybody comes over, they're not immediately going to the dining room table. They're going to be sitting around, can I get you something to drink? Uh, and so for several minutes, they're going to be just talking and waiting for everything to be put on the table. The second invitation comes when everything's ready, the food's on the table, sort of a come and get it invitation. So they say, okay, dinner's served, and then they get up and come. In a, in a slightly different way, there were two invitations given in the first century. Keep in mind, they didn't have stoves and refrigerators. Well, they had stoves, but they didn't have refrigerators. They had ovens. In Jesus' time, when somebody invited people to a banquet, he would give an initial invitation, and the people would respond saying, yes, I'll be there. On that basis, then, the host would decide what kind of food to 
prepare and how much to prepare. It's done the same way today, by the way. And then, I mean, they're not going to come to his house until the food is ready. So the second invitation goes out after the food is completely prepared, and then his servant goes around to these people and says, come, for all things are now ready. That, that's still used, by the way, in, in the Middle East. So it's, it's the same in those days. They, they begin to make excuses then, after the food's been ready, after they've, they've waited until all the food's ready, and uh, then they start making excuses as to why they cannot come. Well, that's, it's like somebody coming to my house and enjoying the fellowship and then when the food's finally put on the table and my wife says come on in everything's ready then they start to get up and walk out of the house making some lame excuse so that shows you the strength of the insult to the host of this banquet to begin with and that's very important that's why the host got angry the second reason is these excuses themselves are terrible they're obviously just they're not meant to be effective they're not meant to be real excuses the first one is remember that somebody says well I bought some land and I need to go see it well nobody buys land especially in those days sight unseen there were so many things about the the, the land in Israel that were critical if you wanted to have a good uh, crop on it you had to find out about the drainage and the Sun and there are a lot of things nobody would buy land sight unseen even if he did why would it be necessary all of a sudden, the banquet's probably in the evening, to go and see this land at nighttime? So the, the excuse is no excuse. It's just, a, it's just an obviously lame reason to get out of going to the banquet. The second one is equally ridiculous. I have bought a yoke of oxen and I need to go test them. Nobody buys a yoke, which would be two a pair. He said, I think I've bought four pair of ox, oxen and I need to go test them. Nobody buys oxen untested. You have to find out if they pull at an equal pace, if they tire uh, about the same time. Uh, otherwise, they're useless, absolutely useless. So to buy a, a four pair of oxen, four yoke of oxen, and then all of a sudden at night, you know, you have to go test them is another lame excuse. Now the third one, the guy says, I just got married, and so uh, I'm not coming. He doesn't even ask to be excused. Well, for some help on this, uh, there is an, an, an first century, second century Aramaic Christian scholar who interprets this in terms of the, those days in the Middle East. What he's saying, the guy basically say, is saying is it's a great insult it would be to his wife. He's saying, I've got a wife waiting for me in the bedchamber, so I'm not coming. All of these are pitiful insulting excuses what becomes obvious to the servant then who goes to announce you know come on the meals ready is that somebody there's a collusion here that these people have gotten together to try to trash the banquet of the host why would they do that think about what's been being talked about all the time Jesus advice to those people about giving a banquet it's because the reason they're trying to trash the banquet is because of who is invited besides them and that is the issue between Jesus and the Pharisees and his Messiahship all along. They wanted him, if you're going to be our Messiah, you're going to be a Messiah to us only. And Jesus says that's not the way it is. This is a plan to save the entire world. And throughout the Old Testament, he kept giving hints to that to his disciples. And of course, at the end, at the Great Commission, he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And Isaiah's prophecy, all nations will be there. I mean, you can read this throughout Scripture. 
So there really was a very perverse view of the scriptures and of the Messiah, and that's why they plotted to kill him. Jesus pronounced blessings on the Gentiles through his ministry, and he brought judgment to the Jewish nation. He cursed the wrong people. He, he, that's why they crucified him. Uh, now, of course, all this is in, within God's plan for him to pay the sacrifice for our sins. But that's the big problem there. These excuses just absolutely fail. So then, think about this. So then again, the master, the host, says to his servant, <clears throat> well, go get those people. Go get the lame and the halt and the, and the blind. In a sense, he turns his anger into grace. And this is the issue. This has been the issue all along. The Jews were after, at that time, and I don't mean this to be anti-Semitic in any way, it's just the Jewish leadership of that day uh, had fallen away from the true teachings of God. Jesus knew it. He was Jewish too. He was a teaching rabbi who was sent to bring them and offer them the true kingdom as opposed to the one they were opting for. But that was the issue. They were after prestige. That's why they kept certain people out of the temple. They wouldn't have anything to do with the Gentiles. They were after restoration to their former greatness. Uh, it was about them. As opposed to this prestige, Jesus was about giving grace to everyone. That's what grace is. It's freely offered. That's the whole point of Christianity. There really are, and I've said this many times, but I think I need to say it now, there are only two religions in the world when you get right down to it. There are a lot of different names, but one religion says, be good enough. Be so good that God actually owes you salvation. God owes you heaven. You're so good that you have credit, in other words, in heaven. Rather than owing a debt to God, God owes you a debt. We're the debtors. God's not in debt to us. First of all, he has no needs. Second of all, we're the ones who offended him. And we can't, we can't be good enough to pay for our sins. God's not going to take a big scale at the end of time and, and weigh our good works against our bad works and see which one weighs the most. And if our good works outweigh our bad, then we go to heaven. It doesn't work that way. The good things don't pay for the bad things any more than the right answers on a test counteract the wrong answers on a test. It just doesn't work that way. Grace is about the free offer. Grace costs Jesus everything, but it costs us nothing. Now, certainly discipleship costs us something. We, give, we, we are to give all that we have in the, hand, in the sense of surrendering it to God, and God can take whatever he wants as far as the need arises. But our salvation is free over and over and over again. That's, that's what distinguishes Christianity. I've said this many times. It's not exclusive for me to take from Jesus what no one else is offering. The gift of eternal life based on His sacrifice for me.